Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. People, when I studied the history of the wars that have been fought and the rifts that have separated Christians from one another, God started planting the seeds in my heart for this series of sermons. This is a series that I have practiced teaching time and time again, usually in conversations over coffee, sitting in a restaurant booth someplace with the church members with church members who weren't sure if their doctrinal convictions or their conscience would allow them to keep, be, keep being a part of the same church family that I was a part of. This is a series about what the church is supposed to be all about. But more specifically, this is a series about why this particular church, the Heritage Church of Christ, exists. And the whole series is centered around the one thing that I believe Jesus wants most for his followers. When you study through the New Testament book of John, the fourth book in the New Testament portion of the Bible, you'll notice that John doesn't follow a standard timeline as he tells the story of Jesus' life. John is not a play-by-play reporter. That's not his style, and it doesn't fit his purpose. Instead, John tells the story of Jesus in episodes and highlights. John pieces together this mosaic of the teachings and the declarations and the miracles and the moments in Jesus's life that create this picture of what Jesus and his mission were all about. And as part of that mosaic, John dedicates a full third of his chapters just to tell about what happened in the final 24 hours of Jesus's life before he was executed. John writes about Jesus's last supper with his disciples, and he tells the story of Jesus's living example of servant leadership as he washed the feet of those who had not only been following him, but would soon stop following him and betray him, at least for a time. And then for the next three chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, John records Jesus' final words of instruction for his followers, and Jesus knows that he's just about to be handed over, and he speaks with the gravity of a leader who is sharing his most important parting lessons. Jesus is very aware of the score and the situation, and he knows it's time to share what's most critical, what's most important for his followers to understand. But once those lessons in John 14, 15, and 16 are completed, John dedicates chapter 17 to recording a prayer that Jesus prayed immediately before he was arrested. This is not the prayer that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke when Jesus goes off to a place in a garden by himself and prays about the possibility, God, let this cup pass from me, the possibility of avoiding his fate on the cross. This prayer in John is unique. This is a prayer that Jesus prays in front of his closest friends. 
A prayer that Jesus prays in the presence of his disciples and he's primarily praying for them. He prays that God would give them strength and that God would protect them as they share the message that they have seen and heard and while they've been his apprentices that they would have picked up what they needed to know and that they would be attuned to the Holy Spirit for the next phase of their mission following God. He prays for those disciples standing right in front of them, in front of him. But then at the end of that portion of the prayer, Jesus makes a turn. He makes a curious transition. At the culmination of this prayer, knowing, okay, don't miss this, knowing full well that these would be the last words that his disciples would hear him speak before he died, Jesus prayed for you. In John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, you may even be able to see in my Bible how the red letters indicating the ones spoken by Jesus run out here in chapter 18. The whole scene changes. But in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples standing right in front of me, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. This is where Jesus is praying for you, and he's praying for me. You see, the Christian story is a story that's been passed down generation to generation. It hasn't always been passed directly from parents to children, but it's always been passed from one generation of Christians to the next. And it started with the writings and the teaching and the preaching of the people who listened to Jesus pray this prayer in person. And so when he says, I pray for all those who will ever believe in me through their message, that includes us. He's talking about you and me. We learned the Jesus story because this message got passed down to us. And so I want us to pay attention here because these are the most relevant particular words of Jesus in the whole Bible that are specific to your life. When Jesus thought about you and me, in a prayerful conversation with his heavenly Father, this is what he said. Verse 21, I pray that they, you and me, that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given the glory, I have given them the glory you gave me, so may they be one as we are one. He prayed to his Father, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now, when you listen to these verses, when you listen to these sentences in Jesus' prayer, I want you to be cognizant of how many different topics Jesus could have prayed about for you and for me. 
I want you to think about all of the different things that Jesus could have asked for, all of the hopes that Jesus had for his church throughout the generations to come. Think about all of the things that, boy, if Jesus could have his way and it could improve this about your Christian walk, think about all of the different things Jesus could have prayed about. But the one thing that Jesus decided to pray about in the final words before his death, before he parted with ways with his disciples, the one thing he decided to pray about for us wasn't spiritual knowledge, and it wasn't precise obedience, and it wasn't successful evangelism. Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed that we might be cohesive with one another. The last thing that Jesus' disciples heard him say before he gave himself up to be killed was a prayer for the church in every generation to be united together. And yet, one of my favorite authors refers to this as Jesus' greatest unanswered prayer. Because for the last 1,900 years or so, unity has been elusive at best, and at times unity hasn't been even on the church's mind. Because the tragic repeating saga of God's people for the last 1,900 years has been a story of division after division after division. Throughout Christian history, the church has split into factions and entirely separate movements time and time and time again. Disagreements have turned into disputes, and disputes have led to disconnection and disconnection resulted in disfellowship, and suddenly there were Christians who wouldn't talk to each other. And as if that wasn't bad enough, Christian history, if you read the stories, wars have been waged. Casualties have mounted into the countless numbers over conflicts that got started over Christian doctrinal disagreement. You studied some of this in your high school world history classes, I'm sure. Christian leaders over the centuries have even gone so far as to execute scholars and thought leaders who were deemed to be teaching heretical views, views that nowadays seem commonplace. And the irony of it all, the tragedy of it all, is that in every one of those divisions that I'm referring to, in every one of those battles, and in every one of those decisions to separate, all of the participants on both sides claimed to be worshipers of Jesus who they called the Prince of Peace. We're not just talking about ancient history, I'm sorry to say. The reality is that vicious disagreement between Christians is still prevalent today. If you were to spend just a few minutes reading through the content posted by many Christians on Twitter or Instagram or any other social media site, you'll quickly find yourself overwhelmed and appalled by the name-calling and the accusing and the one-upsmanship and the condemnation that Jesus' people seem so ready to dish out to one another. Christianity invented cancel culture long before it was given that name. Even today, there are major movements of churches all over the world who do not recognize one another's legitimacy, who will not share communion with one another, will not take the Lord's Supper together because of disagreements that happened 1,600 years ago. 
and the cumulative effect of all of that division is that the light of Christ shining into the darkness of the world loses its luster. There was a church leader in the late fourth century who could see the seeds of this beginning to develop. His name was John Chrysostom, and he preached that if disciples of Jesus would keep the peace among themselves that they had learned from Christ, he said, people around us would know the teacher by his disciples. But he also said that the belligerence and the division of Christian disciples would cause other people to deny that they are disciples of a God of peace. And so this matters. And this is exactly what Jesus was praying about in the final words before he marched off to his death. This is what Jesus was praying about. The prayer in John 17 was pleading for unity for generations of the church to come, but not just for unity's sake. Jesus thought of us and he prayed, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me. He said, may they be so cohesive together, so united together, that everybody else would take notice and recognize God's love, God's presence, God's intervention. Jesus was praying about us. He was praying about our mission. He was praying about our witness. He was praying that unity would be the church's calling card that inspires the world's curiosity. Jesus was praying that the world would be amazed at how cooperative and integrated Christians from different backgrounds and different opinions could be. Jesus was praying that our faith would cause us to set aside personal preference for the sake of staying connected with other Christians who see things differently than we do. And in most of the Christian world, Jesus' prayer seems to have gone unanswered. Throughout most of Christian history, Jesus' prayer has not resulted in a story of unity. But I want to tell you with a smile on my face that there have been some exceptions. That throughout these 1900 plus years scattered throughout the timeline of Christian history, there have been some highlights and there have been some examples of Christians who decided in their hearts that unity was more important to them than uniformity. There have been examples of Christians who decided that unity was more important to them than unanimous agreement about nailing down all the right answers to every little question of doctrine. And that's why I want to make you aware of the unique history of the churches of Christ. It's not particularly important that you be a history buff, and I understand that many of you who are here with us are not some, you you didn't grow up in this movement, and it's totally okay, and, and I'm not, I'm not just giving you this information so that you'll be able to recite stuff from the past. I want to tell you this so you'll know who we are. I want to tell you this history so that you'll understand the DNA of our particular church, the DNA of the Heritage Church. 
You ought to know that by conservative estimates, there are over 40,000 Christian denominations in the world today. Over 40,000. If you look at a diagram of Christian denominations, it looks a little bit like a family tree with more and more branches going down, but it expands so quickly that its branches become impossible to contain in any manageable size and be able to examine the whole thing. And so it would be natural. It would be natural to assume that the churches of Christ are just one of the 40,000 different options out there with its own peculiarities and positions on various questions of doctrine. But when you learn about the history of the churches of Christ, what you learn is that over 200 years ago, our movement began as a unity effort. Our movement began as an attempt to try to draw Christians together, to restore connection where connection had been severed and broken. When you study this history, you begin by learning about a man named Barton Stone who was christened as a baby in the Anglican church and then as an adult became a Presbyterian minister living on the frontier in eastern Kentucky in the early 1800s. And he's somebody who has a very primitive education, who's essentially self-taught in theology, studied the scripture on his own. He preached in the hills of Eastern Kentucky and found himself following the same pattern that other Christians did, eventually disagreeing and separating from the particular strain of Presbyterians that had ordained him for ministry. And so he finds himself more and more secluded in a smaller group of Christians who agree with him, who have disconnected from the larger group they were previously connected to. But over time, Barton Stone witnesses God working in the ministry of preachers from Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches there on the, pres on the American frontier. And Barton Stone concludes that if God's Spirit could work mightily through all of those different streams of Christianity, then the differences between those denominations must not be matters of the gospel. He says if God's Spirit can show up in response to the preaching of all of those different churches, then maybe our differences are not big enough to keep us apart. And Barton Stone spent the rest of his life building bridges between Christians rather than drawing lines of division between Christians. His message, and I quote, was that we should let Christian unity be our polar star, our number one goal. There were two other men, a father-son duo named Thomas and Alexander Campbell, who were Scottish. They studied at Glasgow University in Scotland before they immigrated to the U.S. in 1809. And these two men served as ministers in a branch of the Baptist Church in western Pennsylvania. But through their study, they became committed to the unification of Christians all over the world. They rejected division. They rejected the distinctions that kept Christians from working together and worshiping together. And instead, they focused on the common denominators. They focused on the basic doctrines of the Christian faith that all followers of Jesus ought to be able to agree on. And over time, Barton Stone's movement in eastern Kentucky 
And Thomas and Alexander Campbell's movement in western Pennsylvania began to expand, and eventually those circles of influence contacted one another. Those two movements became aware of one another and started to have interaction with one another, and that's when they had to decide if, if they really meant what they'd been teaching about unity. You see, these two movements had so much in common in their convictions about how Christians ought to be able to be unified and get along. But the truth is that both of these movements had very different practices about some very significant issues of the faith. They had different practices about baptism. They had different practices about how and when to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They had different practices about evangelism, and they had different convictions about the doctrine of the Trinity. They differed on some issues that were not small. But the beautiful result of their conversation was that both of these movements decided that the things they held in common far outweighed their differences. They decided that unity was more important than uniformity. And the cooperation that began between these two groups of Christians who laid aside their differences in favor of working together so that the world might be amazed by their unity, the cooperation between these two groups started the movement that would eventually result in the formation of the churches of Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you more of that story in the coming weeks. I'm going to tell you some more highlights of that history. I'm going to share with you some quotes from some of the people who were leaders in the earliest days of that movement. And the reality is that vision is difficult to pass on. Vision leaks. And so the reality is that the vision of unity that those early leaders of our movement had and that they, the, the conviction that led them to join their movements together that conviction has not always been at the highlight or the forefront of our church's work. It hasn't always been our calling card. It hasn't always been what we've been known for. There have been times, and maybe you've had some experience of this of your, of your, on your own, there have been times when churches of Christ have been known more for who they were against than who they were for. I believe it grieves God's heart. But I also want to tell you that as far as this preacher is concerned, the reason that the Heritage Church of Christ exists is so that we can continue to be a unity movement for Christians who don't agree about every single thing. Our church ought to exist to be part of the answer to Jesus' prayer. Our church ought to exist because we believe that churches and Christians who stay connected to one another under the banner of Jesus serve as a light to the world that is irreplaceable in any other movement. I'm going to tell you more. Thank you.
I'm going to tell you more of this story in the coming weeks, and I'm, I'm excited to tell you because some of the quotes that I'm going to share are so inspirational to me. But I wanted to begin by telling you the part of the story I've already shared because I want you to know that being a unity movement is in our DNA. It's who we are. We are a church who has always, in our best moments, attempted to make room, to broaden the tent, to make space and open room at the table for a wide variety of people who are convicted that Jesus is Lord. We have been a church, there, and there are highlight moments of this story. There are moments when our church, our, and I'm talking about our congregation, not just churches in general, not just churches of Christ in general. I'm talking about us, okay? There have been moments in our story when we have had the reputation, by God's grace, to be known as the church where people could come and find healing when they've been rejected at other churches. We in our history have been known as the church who opened our doors and made space when an independent Pentecostal church, very different from us in their doctrine and worship practices and things like that, suffered the, de the destruction of their campus in a tornado. Our church opened its doors and said, you come worship here. That move would have made no sense if we didn't believe that they were legitimate Christians, but we did. We believed that because they named Jesus as Lord and because in, in, in their good faith effort they were trying to be obedient to Jesus, we believed that even if we came to some different conclusions about the minutia and the, and the details of what church should look like or what worship should look like and all of that, we believed that they were actual Christians and that we should work together. This is in our DNA. We are a people who believe unity and grace matter. I've begun to tell people in those restaurant booth coffee conversations recently that I believe Unity, may be, unity between Christians who disagree may be the greatest opportunity for many of us to witness a miracle firsthand in our lifetime. I've always wanted to see a miracle, haven't you? And in, 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 in my most clear thinking moments, I realize that my life is a miracle, that the births of my children are miracles that the love I share with my wife is a miracle, that the love of my parents is, I, I realize that I've been surrounded and affected by so many miracles, but there, there are, I've always wanted to see something that I just didn't expect and couldn't explain, and I wonder if this could be it. I wonder if maybe unity between Christians who disagree might be the greatest opportunity for you and I to witness a miracle firsthand in our lifetimes. I believe this is the DNA of our church. I believe that unity glorifies God. And I believe that when unity between Christians who disagree happens, the result is that it gives a chance for the world to see 
the kind of community, the kind of connection, united across traditional barriers of race or custom or gender or class or background or education, it gives the world a chance to see the kind of connection, the kind of community that can only come from the action and the intervention of God. And so the question that I think each one of us has to ask, and it's, a, it's an individual question between you and, and your creator, between you and the Lord, but the question that we have to ask is this. Am I going to be a line-drawing Christian, or am I going to be a bridge-building Christian? I've decided for me, I want to build bridges. I want to make connection. I want to be part of the answer to Jesus' prayer. And I believe this is what we've been called to do together. You know, in the church that I grew up in, we sang a song together. We sang it after almost every baptism. It was a beautiful moment, and we'd sing this song. We would actually stand in a circle, and we would join hands together, and we would sing this song that said, Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together. Bind us together, it said, with chains that cannot be broken. Now, that was obviously metaphorical. But then the very last word, there's something about last words, right? The very last word of the song glued it all together and provided some clarity that you wouldn't have known if you didn't get to the end of the song. The end of the song said, bind us together, Lord, bind us together, bind us together with love. There's a lot of other words you could put in that space. There's a lot of other words that you could hope would be the glue that would bind people together. But in the church of Jesus Christ, love is the key to our unity. We're going to keep talking about this over the next couple of weeks, but for now, let's be people who are praying to know how to love.